Thank you for tuning in to Hill Country Fellowship's audio podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired as you listen today. For more information, visit us online at hcfburnett.org. Good evening. It's good to be here. And uh, I think as I pondered on what to share this evening, I was reminded of uh, uh, the 1990 uh, playoffs, NBA playoffs. Uh, the Chicago Bulls were playing against uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Was a very tough game. Michael Jordan scored 69 points and Stacey King scored one point. At the end of uh, the game, reporters rushed up to Stacey King with the question, How will you remember this day? And his response was, I'll remember this day as the day Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, a little humbling to uh, be on this stage after. Uh, this morning, I was really, really blessed, and I've been blessed uh, with the testimonies from different missionaries. Uh, sometimes you think you're alone, and then you hear this, I've been really, really encouraged, and I would rather sit and listen to all of these guys than be here, but here I am. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Hill Country Fellowship, for partnering with us. Uh, last year, we had uh, Scott and a few others come and be with us, and what a blessing the way uh, to us. Uh, I am so honored to be here. Um, yeah, let me part of, uh, start by saying English is not my first language. It's not my second language. It's not my third language. It's not my fourth language. It's not my fifth. I grew up speaking about 10 different African languages, and English is just one of them. So if you don't understand everything I say this evening, don't feel bad because I don't understand y'all either. <laughs> you know, but I'll, I'll try to communicate in English. And when you speak many languages like I do, uh, sometimes communicating from one to another or doing literal translation, things don't come out the right way. Uh, you, when you do lit- that's why you have interpreters who contextualize it. In the Yoruba language, one of the languages I speak, when you say, I am very happy, you say, Inumi du kukwo. Can you try it? <laughs> no. <laughs> you say, Inumi do kukpo. Literally translated is, my intestines are very sweet. <laughs> so, so if I say things that don't make sense, uh, just know I'm probably translating from one of uh, the languages I speak. Um, I've been asked to speak on the importance of the church in missions. And uh, it's a very broad topic. I think it's been handled by all of you (laughs) the last few days, and especially this morning. Uh, Jesus said, I will build my church. Uh, And uh, so I want to, I think I'm a product of missions, and I want to take time this evening to share a little bit about myself and the impact of mission in my life, and then what we're doing as a result of that. Let's pray. God, I recognize my inadequacies. But I also recognize you who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond what we even think or ask. And so this evening, as I speak, I ask that you speak to me, through me, to your people, to the end that not only are we challenged, encouraged, but also changed to be agents of change in a world that needs change so badly. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm not sure where to begin, but, uh, you know, I enjoy uh, the great worship here. Uh, I grew up with hymns in the 70s, and, uh, and I still enjoy hymns. Much as I love the modern choruses, there's so much depth and so much theology in some of our old hymns. And one of my favorite is, I serve a reason, Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he's leading whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He leaves salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Not only do I enjoy singing those hymns, uh, almost every morning I wake up with a hymn in my heart. And my kids used to think I wrote all of those hymns. When I, when I travel, they would say, Mom, can, you, can we sing one of Dad's uh, songs? You know, uh, they're just finding out I've never written a hymn. You know. And uh, not only do I enjoy singing those hymns, I enjoy reading the history behind the inspiration of each of these hymns. And uh, this particular hymn was written by a man by the name of Alfred Aker. He was a traveling evangelist. And he was speaking at an outdoor event. And after he had finished speaking, a young Jewish guy came up to him and posed this question. Why should I serve a dead Jew? And he was taken aback. He didn't know how to respond. He looked at the young man and all he could muster, uh, utter was, son, I tell you, he leaves. He leaves. He leaves. And he went home that evening. He could not sleep. The question kept coming back. Why should I serve a dead Jew? And then his response, he leaves, he leaves, he leaves. And he was inspired that night to write this great hymn. He leaves, he leaves. Christ Jesus leaves today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. He leaves, he leaves. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he leaves. He lives within my heart. That probably sums my testimony uh, but another great hymn I enjoy is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wreck Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Written by, uh, I think, uh, John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a drunk. He was a terrible sinner. But because of the prayer of his grandmother and his mother, he encountered Jesus in the ocean, and he was radically, radically changed. It said of John Newton that each time he walked the streets of London and would meet another drunk, he would beat his chest and say, by grace, there go I. John Newton was a man who truly understood the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before he died, John Newton penned these words down. said, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Still, I'm not what I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I'm what I am. This would probably sum the testimony of my life. Not what I want to be, not what I ought to be, not what I hope to be, but still not what I once used to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that same grace, Paul writing to his son, Timothy, in, uh, uh, I think Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verse 11 to 15, Paul said, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly loss, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world, looking for and hastening for the coming of the Lord. 
Asim Grace appeared to me more than 45 years ago as a 13-year-old. I was radically, 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 radically saved. I was one of the first, I'm probably the first from my village, you know, We've never, we didn't know much about, uh, interestingly, although I'd never heard the gospel uh, in this context, I knew about that great God. You know, like I said, in, in, interestingly, God has revealed himself to all of us. Romans chapter 1 tells us that he has revealed himself through the light of creation. Romans chapter 2 tells us through the light of our conscience. And Romans chapter 3 tells us through the light of Christ. And even in the village growing up, we knew there was a big God. In my tribe, we call him Sandup. Literally translated, it's Mr. God. That's a literal translation. In the Yoruba language, they call him Olodumare. That means the God of all God. So there are redemptive messages in every culture, even the cultures that do not know God, you know, like you and I do. They know there is a supreme God there. We call him Sandup, Mr. God. We have, we have all of these other gods, but we know there's a God there. And growing up as a child, I wanted to know that God so bad. In our part of the world, in Africa, one of the reasons the church is growing strongly is because the gospel comes with power in our part of the world. You know, uh, because the, our people, it's, uh, if you saw the culture, uh, in Africa it's more fear and power. And so when you are able to demonstrate the power of God, people respond uh, to that. And we live in so much fear in our part of the world. And growing up, we're always taken to the witch, uh, sorcerer or witch doctor, you call him, you know, and all kinds of things, incantations or things were labeled for prote protection. And my mother had taken me to a, a witch doctor and the guy looked at me and said, do not worry about him, he's a special child. And while my brothers and sisters were taken, my mother never did. So I lived in so much fear. So as soon as I went into the big city, I joined the Catholic Church. I was baptized and confirmed in the 70s or early, in the 60s and 70s, we're not allowed to read the Bible. The Catholics, if, uh, for those of you who know about the Catholic Church, in those days, only the priests could interpret that. And I memorized the Catholic prayer book from front to back. But there was no peace. I got baptized. I was confirmed. But I lived in so much fear, you know, because uh, I was constantly afraid that if my goods were, my bats were more than my goods, I may end up in limbo and we didn't have saints who could be praying for me. So while others were thinking of other things, I was only thinking of eternity. And then I came across uh, the Baha'i faith, which my uncle was playing with the Baha'i faith. I joined, I memorized all of their prayer books. And in the evening, I would pray, but there was no peace. And as early as I can remember, my uncle took me to Nigeria in 1976. I was just uh, about 12 then, uh, where we lived mostly among the Muslims. And uh, I began, I developed interest in, our, uh, in the Islamic faith. I could pray in Arabic and all the other things, but there was still no peace. Then in 1977, I think 1977 or so, a cousin of mine came back from school and he brought a small Bible. And I enjoyed reading, reading, but there were no reading materials. So I stole his Bible. And I'm not advocating stealing, but if you must steal, steal a Bible. 
And in my Catholic tradition, in the evening, I will kneel down. One of the things I learned in the Catholic church was reverence. You know, uh, I will kneel down and say, God, I want to know you. I began reading Psalms and Proverbs and began finding solace in those days, you know. And then I heard there was a crusade. The blind will see. I saw posters in that Muslim village. The blind will see, the lame walk, and all the rest. There was a crusade in town. I walked several miles to that market square and listened. The evangelist made an altar call at the end of it. Things happened. People gave their life miracles and all the rest. I surrendered my heart to Christ, but there was no follow-up. And I'm getting there. And a year later, while attending boarding school, somebody came and preached from, you know, showed us a movie. In the 70s, when we heard the movie, outside there, it was magic. There were, uh, there were these projectors, I'm not sure what they were, and they would put a white cloth, and we'll all be gathered. And after that, uh, this guy spoke from the book of John chapter 1. When he came to verse 11, he said, He came unto his own, and his own did not know him. But as many as received him, he gave power to become sons of God. This one verse, the Holy Spirit has a way of illuminating scriptures. So this one verse will revolutionize my life. But somehow, I recognized this was the power I needed to live the victorious Christian life that I tried. And I surrendered my life. And in the 70s, there were very few of us Christians. We just trust into the ministry. You know, uh, I was, I think, about 13. Then by the age of 15, I was leading a group in boarding school called Fellowship of Christian Students. Uh, became the president. By the age of 17, after graduating from school, I was pastoring, moving from place to place. We had what you call prove your ministry. If God has truly called you, go out there. We're not paid, but we started churches. I used to fast a lot, not because I wanted to, but there was no money. It was much easier to declare a 10-day fast than to starve. <laughs> so that's how I lived in those early days. And uh, I fasted a lot. And uh, when I came to America, I was a little skinny. And uh, as I pastored and I sought the Lord, I just saw poverty, so much of it in our part of the world. And people would give their hearts to Christ, but we could not address some of those things. And that's when I began formulating my theology. I knew I had to do something. And uh, I was pastoring. God spoke to me that I should go back to school. In the 70s and early 80s, we thought, and we believe it, and I still believe it, that Jesus' coming was imminent. And many of us thought, why go to school? Why wait four years in college when souls were perishing? Uh, but God began speaking to me by, by the virtue of what he had called me to do. I needed to go back to school. So I began looking. There was nothing. There was no way. And God opened the doors for me to come to the state. There was a small ministry called Last Days, uh, Keith Green, and uh, I saw their magazine, and I felt very strongly that God was calling me to go there. I applied. The application fee was about $15. I didn't have it. I just put the application fee, sent it. They wrote back and said, you've been admitted. The tuition was this amount of dollars. I didn't have it, so I just wrote, don't have. Sent it back. <laughs> and a few weeks later, they wrote back and said, you've been, somebody had just paid full scholarship for you. And how will I get to the state? I didn't know. I started a small business. I was buying things from Nigeria, taken to Cameroon by boats to sell. And then somehow, you know, I lost everything. <laughs> and my uncle gave me all his life saving. 
sold his motorcycle, sold whatever he could, and bought me a halfway ticket. I went to the American embassy in Douala. Within five minutes, a visa was issued. This is a guy with no bank account, nothing, a young 20-year-old kid. And a visa was issued to me. My uncle bought me a halfway ticket to New York. I was going to Lindale, Texas. Uh, a friend of mine gave me 20 bucks. I thought, well, when I get to America, to New York, I'll catch a cab and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, go to uh, Lindale. So I, <laughs> I landed here in America with less than 20 bucks because uh, we had a connect in LA over in Britain. Uh, we came with British Caledonia. And uh, I spent most of the money there. And when I landed, I had very little. And I landed in New York at the airport with very, very little. And for two days, I found out that uh, you could not catch a cab from New York to Lindale. You know, I found out Texas was a different country. <laughs> uh, and for two days, I slept at the airport, not knowing, knew nobody in the U.S. I'm praying in those days. And as I prayed, the second day I heard my name on the intercom. I remember after, you know, the first day I needed to use the restroom. In my culture, if you want to use the restroom, so I want to ease myself. So I walked up to a lady, I said, oh, you said I want to relieve myself. I said, I would like to ease my, where do I ease myself? You know, in New York, those guys are very rude. She looked at me and said, you're right. And she said a few curse words and left. So I was thinking, these guys are really rude. And I kept doing that left my small baggage with all my life savings and everything, all the clothes, a pair of shoes I had. I was walking, looking for a restroom, and the guy finally understood, and he said, I think you need to use the restroom. I said, no, I'm not trying to rest. <laughs> all I want to do is use, uh, ease myself. And he said, no. He pointed, I saw a sign of a man and a woman. And I said, this must be a den of iniquity. I saw men and women <laughs> going into one door. And I, I looked, I said, this is not uh, what I'm looking for. I'm a Christian and, you know, and when I could not hold it, I said, God, okay. When I could not hold it, I said, God, you know my heart. I'm just going to go in there and tell those women I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and all I want to do is ease myself. <laughs> so I walked through the door and I saw men going one way and women. And for a minute, I thought, the common sense told me to follow the man. And I'm glad I did. I probably would have landed in jail. And the next day, I heard my name on the intercom. Never knew anything about intercom technology. Growing up, we had a teacher who had studied here. And when he came back, he was telling us of these great things in America, how you could be in your home. You're watching something they call television. You could watch a game. We thought this guy was the biggest liar. We could, in our minds, we could not imagine and here I was hearing my name. God had, my whole life, God has spoken to me audibly, probably once or twice. And I knew he only spoke through that still voice. And I kept hearing my name. And so eventually I said, here am I. I remembered little Samuel. Speak to me, Lord. And I bowed. And he wasn't even pronouncing my name very well. You know? <laughs> so I said, okay. And, uh, and nothing was coming. Eventually... There was a guy sitting by me, you know. I asked him, I said, I keep hearing my name, but I'm not saying anything. We listened. He said, oh, they're calling you on the, that's the intercom. They're calling you to the ticket counter. I went there, and a ticket was there waiting for me. Uh, to date, we don't know how it happened. The ticket was to Dallas. I flew to Dallas. 
In those days, they had a lot of pay phones at the airport. Somebody showed me and made a collect call uh, to, the, uh, to the school. And Lindsay Reed, who was the director then, uh, did not answer the phone, but somebody else answered. And when he answered, he said, I said, hello, collect call for Lindsay Reed. They had shown me how to do it. And a guy came, he said, hang on, hang on. I'm looking, he's telling me, and he disappeared. I thought, he's telling me to hang. These guys, they're so rude. Yeah. <laughs> and a few minutes later, Lindsay Reed, I heard another voice said, oh, Ernest, where are you? I said, I'm in Dallas. And I told him where I was. He said, okay, I'll be there in about two and a half hours. And true to his word, he came, picked me up. I was obviously very hungry. He took me to a small stand. And uh, I think he, I was visibly hungry. He took me to a small stand. I said, Ernest, I said, yeah, will you like some hot dogs? <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> in my back in my tribe, we eat all kinds of things, but our tribe doesn't eat dogs. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm thinking, but as a young preacher, we're told, eat whatsoever you, uh, where, as you travel, eat whatsoever is given to you. So reluctantly, I was thinking, how do I write home that I've eaten dogs? And uh, reluctantly, I said, yes. And I think he saw my facial expression. I said, what about chicken sandwich? I didn't know what sandwich was, but I knew what chicken was. So I said, yes, I ate chicken. I went to school, and the next day, I started a rumor on campus. I said, do you guys eat dogs? And everybody was looking at me and said, no. I said, Lindsay took me to a restaurant where they serve dogs. And the guys were saying, no. And I was telling them I was, you know. Uh, so uh, it took me a while. I finally understood what hot dogs were. And if you look at me when I came, I was very skinny, probably 80 pounds. You could tell I've had a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> As I, tra I travel across the country, I stop at Sam's Clubs, and you know, with a dollar fifty, I'm able to buy hot dog and a big old Coke. That's how I live when uh, on a budget like us. But God has been gracious to me. I went to school, and I'm saying all of this. Uh, I'm asked to speak on the impact of missions, but I want to say some of these things because of the impact the gospel has had on me. And it would not have happened without the local church. I think uh, it's Emil uh, Bruno, uh, Bruno who said, the church exists by missions just as fire exists by burning. You know, uh, if you look at the way Jesus taught, and I know my time uh, is fast gone. Last time I was here, I said, Americans have watches and no time. Africans don't have watch and they have all the time, you know, so we, uh, time, time is very elastic for us. We go on and on and on and uh, usually services last three hours. In the 70s, services will go for eight hours and nobody moved, you know, um, so, but uh, I was given a verse in seminary which says, blessed are those who bring short message for they shall be invited back. So uh, <laughs> I know if I don't do that, I may never come back. So I will respect the time this evening. But I just uh, so much uh, has been said here already about missions. I just want to, uh, the impact or the importance of uh, missions, uh, the church in missions. Uh, I want to read a few verses and then I will uh, just share a few things uh, there. Um, let me read uh, just a few verses for us. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe. And uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, uh, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
a peculiar people to proclaim the praises of him who has gotten you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Uh, the church exists by missions. God has placed us here. When I became a Christian in the 70s, I was so excited. Uh, you know, and I didn't know much about temptation. Then I found out I was just 13 years, temptation began coming. And I read, I took the Bible, some of the passages literally. So when your eyes plug it out and I could not, and so I would say, God, kill me. But aren't you glad God doesn't answer all our prayers? God has left us here for a reason, so that we could make an impact in our world. Uh, the late Mother Teresa of Calcutta was once asked by reporters, they asked the question, how, how, how can you change society? She responded not with an answer, but with a question. She said, how can you change society except you bring men and women face to face with God? I think her question goes to the heart of a great myth. For generations, we've thought if we could only change society, and so we've come up with all kinds of social programs, and after this Spending billions and trillions of dollars, we've discovered that no amount of tinkering can change our social or, uh, until men and women are changed from within. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is preeminent. And like we heard this morning, the church is God's heartbeat. It, it cannot happen without the local church. One of the things I like about this church is this is, a, a mission. This is unlike any other church I've been to. It's a church that is on mission, that believes in mission, you know, that gives towards mission. Uh, we're glad to have them uh, in, uh, was it October this year? Uh, so much is happening uh, in our part of the world, and I want to share this before I close. In our part of the world, the church is growing, leaps and bounds. But the church like the one you saw in the video got burnt. A church in the city in a poor section of the city of 200 members and absolutely nothing because unemployment is more than 60% in the country. Like one of our speakers said, the youth population is very high and more than 60% of them are unemployed. So missions has to take a complete different shape. And so one of the things we're doing is we combine the uniqueness of our work is our ability to combine evangelism with social action. Oftentimes, there's been this dichotomy. Some section of the church, a liberal arm of the church, will emphasize the social aspect of the gospel at the detriment of the spiritual. And then some of us will emphasize the spiritual while neglecting the social. One of the things we're trying to do is do both. Balance. Balance requires a lot of work. And that's what the church and because it requires work, you see the pendulum swing both ways. It requires a lot of work to create that balance. And because we're lazy, we're all lazy, you know. We're naturally, you know, lazy, we don't want to work. So it's much easier to say, I'll do this or I'll do that. But in our part of the world, you can't afford to just do one. It has to be completely holistic. So that's what we're doing. Uh, we want, uh, you know, you raise a child and the child is 40 and the child is still at home. You should be asking not just what is wrong with this child, but what did I do wrong? Mission in our part of the world is about 70 years. In some parts, some parts, 100 years. But we're still dependent on Western benevolence. There's a problem. There's, there's something wrong with that picture. We must build in such a way that Africa or third world nation will also be at a given end, not just at a receiving end. It wasn't 
you know, just, you know, I tell my guys all the time, I said, uh, uh, the psalmist didn't say, I will lift up my eyes abroad from whence cometh my help. It, that's not what he said. He said, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. And as we look up as a church, we begin to get visions of what God wants us to do. And two of those areas, some of those areas we're addressing is in the area of economic and community development. We're developing a farm. Uh, Pastor Scott may have shared it here with you. Right now we have about 200,000 pineapples on the ground. Our goal this year is to have a million hundred pineapples, a million pineapples on the ground. We buy the suckers at about five cents, but within a year or 15 months, we're able to harvest it and sell them for 20, 25 cents. Many of you know the profit margin in agriculture is very small. The only way you make it is uh, to develop, uh, to produce in large quantity. And our goal is to be able to produce in such a way that on a weekly basis, we could generate about $4,000, which is more than what our support is. You know, uh, the average person, the highest paid worker in our ministry in Cameroon is paid 200, uh, about $500. He's a veterinary doctor who manages the farm. Most of our guys are paid about 150, uh, and then you are living in the capital city. So we want to build in such a way that if Jesus tarries, we'll be able to not just provide services, we'll create employment, but simultaneously generate revenue that in turn can impact the work of God, missions in our part of the world. Those are some of the things we've also started in school. My 10-year-old child is autistic. We found out uh, about eight years ago when he was two, and the natural thing was to move to the state. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I studied here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we started a school for autistic kids, and... Uh, the school is gradually evolved into an all-inclusive school. We're thankful for what God is doing, and we're thankful for the part you're playing here. The church, you see, exists by missions, just as fire exists by burning. Let's pray. God, your word has gone forth this evening, and you said it will not return void. It will accomplish that which is meant for. And so this evening I ask that your work, your word will work in our hearts, that you stir our hearts afresh for missions, that you help us to see that we're here just for a season and that you've placed us here to make an impact in our world. We thank you again for your church. You've promised, you said, you will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Build your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more sermons and full service replays, visit us online at hcfburnett.org. God bless and have a great week.